The reading tonight is from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8, which can be found on page 243 of the New Testament section of the Church Bibles. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Emily. Uh, Just give me a moment to set out my stall here, and then I'll pray before we kick off, if that's the appropriate thing to say from here. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we pray that we would sense you in this place, that if you have words for us to hear, we would have ears to hear them. So watch over all that I say. In Jesus' name. Amen. Coming second is sometimes very difficult to cope with. Uh, Nobody wants to be second. And you may remember in the Tokyo Olympics last year, there was a British boxer called Ben Whitaker. And he was tipped to win a gold medal, but he won a silver medal. And on the podium, he stood there with his head down in disgrace. And they presented him with the silver medal. And he took it, he refused to put it round his neck, he stuffed it in his pocket. And he was widely criticized for doing that. Uh, And later he said, I didn't win the silver, I lost the gold. Didn't win the silver, I lost the gold. There's a lot of negativity around the whole idea of second, uh, second hand, second class, second rate, second best. It's not what most people want. Uh, And this evening I want to talk about three things. A second city, Christians who are treated like second-class citizens, and Jesus who gives the persecuted and downtrodden a second opinion, a second city, second-class citizens, and a second opinion. We need to start by looking at the passage that Emily's read for us, a little passage in Revelation chapter 2. It's known as the letter to the church in Smyrna, one of the seven letters uh, to the churches in Asia. And it really takes the form of a prophetic message from Jesus to the church there. In verse 8, we see that it's addressed to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Maybe that's a way of personifying the church 
The message was, of course, for the people in the church rather than for just an angel. And in the second part of verse 8, it says that the words are from the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Who might that be? Well, in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, the author of the, all seven letters is identified as Jesus. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the author. It's important that we understand something about Smyrna. It's still there in modern-day Turkey. It's now called Izmir. Uh, it's a city of over three million uh, residents. Much smaller back then, of course, but it was a beautiful city by all accounts uh, at the time of Revelation. It was well placed for trade. It had a good harbor, access to the sea. And interestingly, just as an aside, it was destroyed in 580 BC, only to be rebuilt again in 290 BC. So for the people who lived there, the idea of death and resurrection would have been a familiar concept for them. But the most interesting thing that I read as I researched about Smyrna, and the thing I want you to notice first of all this evening, historians tell us that it rivaled Ephesus for the title of first city of Asia at the time. In other words, it was not quite up to the standard of Ephesus. It was second best, slightly second rate, which made me wonder what the people of Smyrna felt about their status. And I suspect it led to some discomfort, uh, maybe some feeling a little bit inferior. We live in a second city in Asia. But what do cities and countries sometimes do when they are regarded as second-rate? Well, they try to overtake their rivals to become the first and the best. And I think that's what was going on in Smyrna. I mean, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But the prominent men and women of the city would have been pulling out all the stops commercially and socially. And that would have involved keeping on the right side of the Romans who were in power in those days. So when the whole idea of worshipping the emperor came along in the Roman world, the movers and shakers in Smyrna said, well, let's be early adopters of this. We will be among the first to set up worship to the Roman emperor. Emperor, And that's exactly what they did, uh, thinking perhaps that they were going to get won over on Ephesus uh, rivals just down the road. And you may not have heard of Roman uh, emperor worship. Apparently, the way it worked was this. Uh, William Barclay describes it. He says, uh, once a year, the Roman citizen needed to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. All the Christians had to do was to burn that pinch of incense, say, Caesar is Lord, receive the certificate, and go away and worship as they pleased. But that is precisely what the Christians would not do. They would, not, they would give to no man the name of Lord, 
that that name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They would not conform. And that may have been one of the things that led to them being treated like second-class citizens. Because one thing that a city trying to get ahead struggles with are the non-conformists. They uh, stick in the muds. So the influential people of Smyrna were looking for a minority who might be holding the city back. And if they were looking for such a minority, they might readily have settled on the Christians. And it's a familiar story from the oppressor's playbook, if you like, from across history. The way it works is you identify your chosen minority, you persecute them, and with a bit of luck over time, they will be disempowered, discredited, perhaps even driven out of your community. And all the while, they've been scapegoats and perhaps a distraction from what's really going on. And that's exactly what seemed to be happening to the Christians in Smyrna. They're described in verse 9, if you've got your Bible open, as afflicted, in poverty, and slandered. And who were the perpetrators? Well, they're described as people from the Jewish community, people who, as Jesus says in verse 9, say they are Jews and are not. In other words, um, they are what you might call false Jews. Jesus describes them as a synagogue of Satan, In other words, they would gather in a meeting place to worship, perhaps with a cultural nod towards the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in actual fact, valuing something or someone much more highly. If you were part of a persecuted group, um, a minority within that group will end up being killed. Uh, But the majority, for the majority, it can easily lead you to having a low opinion of yourself. Your poverty marks you out as different, one of the have-nots. Perhaps you begin to be worn down by their slander to the point where you start to think that the lies said about you have some truth in them. And what others say about you can have a profound effect on you, how you see yourself perhaps even how your life turns out. If somebody says to you, you are worthless, rubbish, you're getting in the way of progress here, you'll never come to anything. If somebody says that to you, what you need is a second opinion. The Christians in Smyrna, to those Christians, Jesus says to that persecuted minority, and I think he says the same today to all the downtrodden and oppressed to those who feel second-rate. He says, I know your affliction. I know about your poverty. I know about this slander. And I think he also says, I know how some others view you. I know how you are tempted to view yourself. But I have something to say to you. I want to give you a second opinion. A second opinion. Sometimes second can have a positive concept a second wind, a second chance, a second opinion. And there it is in verse 9, the second opinion. You are rich. You are rich. Now, in what sense were these people rich? Well, I think they knew their sins were forgiven. They knew that their destiny was assured by the resurrected Jesus But I want to suggest to you that they also understood something profound about life. Uh, 
They understood how to love and be loved and to love themselves. And I think we too are rich if we are followers of Christ. We have the potential to be rich in love towards others. Even if we don't experience overt persecution ourselves, it is for us to stand shoulder to shoulder with those who do, who are oppressed and discriminated against as an expression of our love for them. I was going to get you to stand up and turn around at this point, but I'm shying away from that. I think I'll just plow on, unless you really want to stand up and turn around. Do you? No, you look quite comfortable and still largely awake, so that's good. So at this point, I I want to set off on a completely different tack. So I've got a question for you, and here it is. Are you ready? Are you ready? What are you ready for? (laughs) if if I ask you that as as a question you might reasonably say to me well you need to tell me what you want me to be ready for Um, and you could consider that a subtext for this a subtitle for this text might be be ready Jesus is saying be ready Jesus says to the church in Smyrna I know you are suffering but things are going to get a lot worse you are about to suffer Some of you are going to be thrown into prison for 10 days. You will have affliction. That's what's coming up for you in the near future. And what Jesus prophesied came true. Uh, By the middle of the second century AD, a man called Polycarp, a church leader there, was murdered by the largely Jewish mob. And when the church members in Smyrna hear that the warning that Jesus has for them, they'll be asking themselves, are we ready? Am I ready? So to apply that to us, I want us to consider the question, how do you evaluate your readiness for hardship? How do you evaluate your readiness for hardship? Let's consider the challenge of a marathon, something I have to admit I have no personal experience of and uh, being the age I am, no desire to start on that kind of caper. Uh, But if uh, if we were preparing for a marathon, I think there are two broad parts to evaluating readiness. The first is you're going to look back. Have you had an advisor or a coach? Uh, You need a good, experienced coach, I think. Someone you have a good relationship with. Someone who knows you. Someone who has been preparing you and advising you, and most important of all, that you've been listening to their advice. So look back and look forward. Have you sat down with that coach and considered the nature of the challenge? So what does Jesus the coach say? What advice does he have for us as as he gets us ready? In verse 10 he says... Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And he is, don't forget, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. He knows about suffering, and he knows you and all that you are going through. And he says to you, you can do it. Do not fear. And what does he say about the future? Jesus, the coach, knows what is coming, the size of the personal challenge for each individual. And as well as saying, don't fear, he says, be faithful unto death. 
Don't deny me. Don't compromise or go with the flow or take the path of least resistance. Be faithful, even if it looks like it might cost you your livelihood or even your life. And the ultimate reason not to fear is that Jesus is in charge of the situation and will always have the final say. And here we're alerted to the stark contrast between the temporary power and authority that the oppressor might have over you and the ultimate power and authority of Jesus. Jesus, as we have mentioned earlier, is described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. He has the last word, and his last word is this, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Not only that, but verse 11, you will not be harmed by the second death. Nicky Gumbel, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, uses the term biblical agnosticism. Agnostic mean, meaning don't know. And as a biblical agnostic, he believes in the authority of the Bible, but he faces up to the fact that some questions in the Bible, uh, the Bible doesn't give a clear answer to some questions. And one of those things is, why does God not step in and prevent the escalating suffering in a situation like this? Another might be precisely what is meant by the term second death mentioned in verse 11. And we don't know the answers to those questions. But even for the biblical agnostic, the biblical agnostic knows that there are some absolute certainties, and we can be absolutely certain that for those who remain faithful to Jesus, he will keep his promises. He will reward them like a victor in some ancient athletic games with the equivalent of a crown. So finally, what does all that mean for us? You've only got to watch the news these days to realize that difficult times lie ahead of us. Uh, we're faced with what you might call testing times in the areas of economics, international affairs, environmental issues, to name but a few. Ours is an era of uncertainty and hostility, of challenges in relationships between people groups and between individuals. And inevitably, I think, we will be faced with questions about our values and about our priorities. And as we face each of these, we need to pause and ask ourselves, who is Lord of my life? And what does having Jesus as Lord actually mean in practice for me? Jesus says to us, stick with me, be faithful, let me be Lord. And he promises us a fantastic free gift that he'll give us the crown of life. He'll not let us down. He writes the ending to our stories, the crown of life, better than a gold medal. Let's pray together. Jesus, we call you Lord quite easily when we sing, quite easily in this place but help us to continue to 
not only call you Lord, but have you as our Lord in these coming weeks and months and years, whatever the hardships are that lie ahead. Amen.